1: I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. This land has been a meeting place for sharing knowledge, for sharing stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that tradition of storytelling today. And every day at FBI Radio, I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of Black Theatre in this country and it's a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas.
2: And I'm Sada Khan. How do you establish your voice in a room that is historically held for only one kind of person? Being a writer means that pitching your lived experience and when your lived experience challenges the fragile identity of those gatekeeping the space feathers can get ruffled and maybe a few Karen tears shed (laughs) (laughs) screenwriter Natasha Somasundaram will be on the show with us later to chat about her amazing writing and also shed some light on an industry that is now being demanded to change
1: yeah I really can't wait to catch up with Natasha later but first we need to talk about this past Tuesday night Sarah oh
2: my god Tuesday night was when your face me and Darren and Tanya, we went to opening night of Seven Methods of Killing Kylie Jenner at Darlinghurst Theatre Company. You might have heard us chatting with More Blessing Mature and Shari Sevens from the show last week. And we had the absolute privilege of attending opening night and far out. I don't even know where to start.
1: So many amazing things happened in the play, outside of the play, getting there, just the room. <laughs> Um, the people that were there, I was already like, This is this is gonna be good.
2: This it was electric. It was to electric. say the least. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we're gonna talk about our favorite moments from opening night of seven methods of killing Kylie Jenner very shortly. But first let's take a track from someone who graced the stage uh, at opening night. Uh, such a beautiful set from Madame Empress. This is come on over.
2: I know you're looking what you see, baby. Put sugar in an hour You'd be
3: a foolish This don't even matter To me Before I put my mind on you I gotta see
2: Listening
1: to raise Matters. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Darren Losagas. We've also got on the mic with us our executive producer, Tanya Ali. Hello. So, uh, on this Tuesday just past, all three of us went to the opening night of an incredible play that showed at Darlinghurst Theatre Company Seven Methods of Killing Kylie Jenner. It was directed by Shari Sevens, uh, who we had on the show last week alongside one of the stars, More Blessing Mature. Essentially, if you haven't heard about the play yet, two best friends react to the news of Kylie Jenner being becoming the youngest billionaire in the the world and they discover the news on Twitter and what unfolds is this, it's a conversation I guess, it's a conversation between between the two of them and it's a conversation between us as well and uh, it kind of unfolds in real life and on social media.
2: It was the way that they utilised memes Mm. (laughs) and Twitter feeds, I was, because I remember when we interviewed Shari and More Blessing last week. They couldn't really give too much away because it was pre-opening night, so we had to talk in real roundabout ways about it. And Shari was like hinting at the fact that there was going to be like a bit of internet culture, a little bit of meme culture within the play itself. And I remember thinking like, oh, how? Alright, okay. How are we going to see that on stage? How are we going to see that play out? And like, I don't want to give too much away about it either, I guess, because they're still in season. But and you should just you should go see it. One hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. One hundred percent. But like i was just blown away at like you know the two incredible women on stage and how they just like shifted into all these different like voices and personalities of everyone's twitter feeds all around the world like the shift from like british to american accents and like all of it was just hilarious and like the imitation of the memes itself like the whole audience was just getting sent
1: yeah I think what made it so funny, and the thing with most humour that happens on stage as well with a live audience, is how deeply people resonate with it, that they identify with it immediately. Like I remember the reactions being immediate and like, you know, visceral reactions, like people yelling, people like mm-ing, or mm. people like, you know, gasping and laughing um, over these things that... Um, encapsulates so many different lived experiences, but it, in particular, which is what this plays about the lived experience of Black women, yeah, um, and their interaction with how their bodies are being racialized and commodified to the extent that we see someone like Kylie Jenner put on this financial, economic, social elite level, having um, capitalized and profited off the Black bodies, of off bodies of Black people, and they do it in such a way that they pivots from. intense truth bombs to some of the most hilarious jokes you'll ever hear in your entire life
2: yeah yeah and like i think it's important to note because there was so much like fury Mm. (laughs) about the title of the play um and god like how white people pick and choose and select their outrage just it's still it's a it's a privilege that like (laughs) if i was to pick a Pick a white privilege off to have for myself. That would be one of it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just being able to turn it off and turn, turn, turn it on, turn it on, turn it off. Um, and so there was a lot of anger prior to the play just because of the title in itself, and people were like, "It's so violent,"
0: which is hilarious because that is directly addressed in the play at length, like that mm. ridiculous, I don't even know what you'd call it, that reaction to a you know so-called controversial statement of wanting someone who has been exploiting your people Mm. and whose family has been exploiting your people forever to maybe not exist anymore. And, like, yeah, it's hyperbole. Yeah. But, yeah, I think... What on the
1: internet isn't hyperbole. Exactly.
0: Exactly. That's the language of the internet.
2: Especially when, like, the people that are the most violent on the internet are white people. Like, the Mm -hmm. racism online, like, that's actual, like... that, That stuff exists offline. And... We even discussed it with more blessing and Shari about, um, you know how Facebook in itself likes to pick and choose when people breach community guidelines, and when it comes to far right wing extremist groups, nuts neo Nazi neo-Nazi groups, suddenly that it's all about like you know oh freedom of speech. Mm. We don't want to impinge on people's rights to an opinion, blah blah blah. But a black woman with a voice just like making a joke about someone who is like inherently exploitative, so, then it's got to be like silence it, cancel it, outrage. How could we possibly let this happen? What about the children? <laughs> (laughs)
1: The page for the show itself was reported. Yeah, Yeah. the actual
2: page itself was reported. But I mean, the night, like, let's talk about the atmosphere of the night. It was vibes. It was a vibe night. Yeah. And we actually mean, like, they they said it as vibe night.
0: (laughs) And how right they were. Yeah. So let's go back to the night. I'm like walking away from the bar before we've even seen the play. I walk past someone. I'm like, "Mm, they look familiar. Tessa freaking Thompson, and I, like, rush back to you guys. I'm like, guys, look, I'm trying not to be obvious, but Tessa Thompson is right there. I feel there. like a
1: lot of conversations at night were like, I'm not going to be obvious, but <laughs> Tessa Thompson is here. Well,
0: I remember, like,
2: I did spot her, but, like, I was saying this to someone else. I think I was saying it to... um, Because Nairi was there as well. Mm. There were so many amazing people in the room. And I think I was telling Nairi, I was like, oh, my my eyes are just, like, really stimulated right now. (laughs) Like, I don't know where to look because it's just... Like, I haven't been in a... Like, because of COVID as well. Like, it's been a long time since I've been out and and ever, never have I been in the theatre where it's just full of black people. And, like, all these different, like nationalities like and beautiful identities in the one spot and i was just like oh my eyes got not take it i don't know where to look and so in that moment i did i did see tessa thompson but i didn't didn't really register like it didn't click for me and then you ran up and you were like you guys tessa thompson is here and then there was, like, five of the people like, Tess Thompson here, Tess Thompson here, Test Thompson here. Like a ripple
0: of whispers it just was. being like, holy shit. But you're right that, like, yeah, there were, it was the most amazing crowd and it was made all the more powerful by the fact that we have had a year where we couldn't exist in these spaces. And I think also, like, over the past few years in Sydney, in theatre and in the arts in general, there has been more and more of these events where, First Nations people, black people, people of colour have been at the forefront and have been curating spaces. And then, you know, like that, it all went away last Mm. year for obvious reasons. But it was so, like, exhilarating being in that space with everyone.
2: Yeah. And I mean, when we all, I remember when we were all getting our seats, like, I don't know if Darren and was doing this, but my neck just kept snapping back to the door to see where Tessa Thompson was going to sit,
0: and she was pretty she much was right like, behind us. The right behind
2: uh, us. Yeah. She yeah. was
0: right behind us, you guys. <laughs>
1: listening to Race Matters right now. You and me, Darren Lasagas, Sada Khan, and Tanya Ali. We're talking about a play that we saw earlier this week called Seven Methods of Killing Kylie Jenner, directed by Shari Sebbins, co-directed by Zinzia Kenyo, I believe. Yes. 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 Um, We had Shari on the show last week to talk about it. Now that we've seen it, we want to talk about it more. Um, (laughs) The the one thing that really struck out to me, I mean, it was all-encompassing of the play, was that these huge issues or like these huge ideas that are... So, like collective in the way that we experience them racism um, colorism um, the way that we quantify our racial identities and the way that we're commodified or you know in the uh, specific example of this play black people are commodified for social media and for capitalism all of this was filtered through the lens of a friendship the way that these two characters um, knew each other and how they understood each other, how they connected to each other was filtered through these ideas and the way that they exist differently, but in the, in the same in the same place. And it reminds you of all these conversations like I've had with you, Sai, I've had with you, Tanya, I'm sure you've had them with your black friends, your um, people of color friends. And it's like, whoa, seeing that on yeah. stage, I'm like, you can see how these things that exist outside of us have the power to... Uh, either destroy us, destroy our friendships, or empower them in ways that could never be empowered before.
2: Yeah. I mean, I there were so many moments where I was like... Kara's Kara's annoying. Kara's problematic. She's not saying. She's not saying what Cleo's trying to tell her about colorism. And then like I was like, no, Cleo, now it's Cleo. Cleo Cleo's the one. Cleo's the worst one. Cleo's not (laughs) listening to Kara about her privilege as a heterosexual woman. Like, and then I was like, am I problematic? Yes. Am I the issue? What is what? How how have I done wrong by my in my friendships with the black women in my life? and um, all the differing um, identi- identities that we come from and diasporas as well. Like, there was just, like, I was going through a flood of emotions yes. in those moments. They just nailed that stuff
0: on the head and how it felt. Yeah, like you said, how it's, like, told through the lens of this this friendship. Mm. I feel like it's a really good example of how, like, the more specific a story is, the more powerful it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. The nuance,
2: I it was just really, really strong. I think, like, what kind of got me the most was the fact that there was all of this, like... Um, conversation around cancel culture, mm. you know, and, like, everyone trying to protect Kylie Jenner and, you know, and they're all attacking um, Cleo in the play for coming for Kylie Jenner in an online space, which doesn't exist. <laughs> 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 so they're all coming for Cleo in the play online because of um, her just expressing her thoughts and having a right to a voice as a black woman and everything that she was saying was right and... But at the end of it, they'll still like trying to protect her and be like, cancel culture, cancel culture, cancel culture. But at the end of the day, the only people that get cancelled are black women. They're, we, you know, black women take up such a sliver of the space. And when they utilize that space, when we all utilize that space, to speak our truth and air our frustrations and pretty much set boundaries for ourselves. That's all we're doing really when we put anger into our space is us setting boundaries, right? And saying like, no, you can't pick apart the features of me that you like and make money off of it. And, but at the same but then it's like once you do that, you can get cancel for cancelled for it. Like and I come back to it a lot all the time, you know, like um Dr. Chelsea Bond, she says it all the time. Like the, like you all carry on about cancel culture. The only people that get cancelled really physically offline are black women. Yeah, that was my favorite part.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, we did mention before on the night that we saw it it was uh, the vibes night. Vibes night. night. Um <laughs> and Sarah had a particularly nice time at the vibes <laughs> night. Um.
2: Okay. We've wrapped up. Okay. We're coming downstairs. Tessa Thompson and Rita Aura were directly behind <laughs> We you didn't
1: mention Rita
0: before, but Rita Aura was also Rita there. Rita Aura was also there. They were breathing down they our neck. They were breathing <laughs> down our neck. Rita Aura was on
2: my neck breathing. I was a little bit like, um, I know, I don't know where you've been, but it's COVID still exists. Oh. <laughs> Yeah and I'm just I'm just mucking around lovely <laughs> radar um but <laughs> let you love me is a banger um but <laughs> it is anyway fair enough We were coming down the stairs. They were right behind us. And me and Tanya were like, how do we do this? How do we approach Tessa Thompson? And we were trying to come up with a game plan and we were going back and forth.
0: Because we've known she's in town for a little bit. And we've been like, she would be perfect on the show.
2: We've been discussing how perfect she would be for Race Matters. She she has her own podcast. exactly. And then we were saying, we we were getting like quite like, overexcited about it. Sorry, that was my computer. Um, (laughs) Wow. We were getting quite excited about it and we were like, oh, um, you know, how do we do this? What angle do we come from? How do we pitch? Blah, blah, blah. What do we say? And then we were like, wait, this needs to happen organically. Yes. We can't just rush in there. This is a big space. It's our first time probably being, like, out from coming from the States and COVID's a different situation here. Let's just chill. And then... We came downstairs and I was like, I'm going to go to the bar, get a drink. Went to the bar. And then just this, like, I don't even know. It was this X Factor energy just gliding up beside me. And it was called Tessa Thompson. And she was like, just standing right there in the flesh next to me. And I just choked. I just like looked at her and looked back. And I was like, no, this isn't real life. This isn't real life, Sarah. This isn't real life. And then I looked back at her. She looked up at me and she just, and then she smiled. and I smiled. And then she was like, hi. And then I was like, I'm a huge fan! I yelled it at her. I yelled it at her. I yelled at her. I was like, I'm a huge fan. And she was like, oh my God, what? What's your name? What's your name? She was so, so Lovely and kind and genuine, and she kept touching my arm, and it was like I didn't know what to do. She asked me what my name was. I forgot what my name was. (laughs) We had this big yarn. I was looking around the whole time for Darren and Tanya. You were nowhere to be seen. It was really annoying. Probably talking to Rita. And then this other woman came up. Like, we, we were yarning for, like, good 10, 15 minutes. And then this other woman came up. And I was like, oh, let's yarn to her, blah, blah, blah. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's lovely to meet you, Sarah. I was like, yeah. And then ran off. And then came to find you guys. I was like, yeah, guys. I was just talking to Tessa Thompson. And Darren and Tanya were like, like, Darren nearly spat his drink out. And they were like, what did you talk about? And I was like, I
0: can't remember. It happened too fast. <laughs>
2: But, but we talked about race matters, and okay. that's the most important thing. That's what I could recollect from it. <laughs> See you next week, Tessa. So
1: Tessa's coming on the training. I week.
2: was so close to being like, "Are you free? Like, like what's your schedule looking Like, <laughs> we're on like Saturdays five to six. Are you available? <laughs> <laughs> we'll go for a drink after. We'll yeah. go we go to the tent. We we'll like... go to the tent like... after. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It was. Um. It was just like amazing and i think like the fact that tessa thompson was there and so many other important like figures like black figures like change makers were there that night along with like you know just a collective of other black people and i just like that's the importance of community engagement for these spaces and that's everything that shari was describing and telling us and unpacking with us when she came on the show and she was you know telling us about, like, community engagement and why we need it. And, like, are they massively succeeded in that on opening
0: night. 100%. Go see it. We don't have anything more to say.
1: Seven <laughs> methods of killing Kylie Jenner.
2: girls in my area, cold. Dark skin, light skin, medium tones. pumping braids, got mini afros. Thick lips, got hips, some of us don't. Big nose, contour, some of us won't. Never wanna put us in the media, bro. Wanna fat booty like Kardashians. Wanna fat booty that my auntie got a yo. We the this is fashion. Race
1: Matters. I'm Darren Lasagas.
2: And I'm Sada Khan. Joining us in the studio right now is Natasha Somersundaram. Natasha is a screenwriter and playwright. Her works have Blessed the Screen on Netflix, ABC, and on stage at Belvoir, Sydney Theatre Company, Melbourne Theater company. I mean, the list just goes on for a good while. She won a Green Room Award for her play "Jeremy and Lucas Buy a Fucking House." Love that title. And we are privileged to share this space with her today. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
3: you for having me. Oh my goodness! Thanks for that introduction. (laughs) I wish my parents heard that. They will. They will. will. Spotify to listen to this. Yeah. Wherever you get your pods. Listen back. (laughs) <laughs> I'm stoked to be here.
1: Uh, we'll get straight into it. Uh, Natasha, what is it about writing for screen and stage in particular that resonates with you the most?
3: That's a good question. Uh, it It's such a... Like, how I got into screenwriting is a real curious tale. I wanted to be an actor for the longest time, as long as I could remember, but purely for attention, like when I was a kid. No, yep. i just in the craft. I was like, I don't want to change anyone's life. I just want to go on the Ellen DeGeneres show. I was a real, I was a real basic little girl. And thank God that didn't eventuate. Like, all, all for the best. Or what happened to Ellen? Well, yeah, yeah. All oh, for yeah. the best. I'm so glad I didn't get caught up in that. Um, But I just got, I fell into writing at uni. Like I was getting quite disillusioned with acting. I I was at uni, I started in 2013. And that doesn't feel like that long ago, but even just the way we were talking about representation in the media, it's nothing like we are now. Mm. Um, I was, couldn't get any speaking roles. I was getting like the only roles I was getting like us or for were like really like borderline racist roles. I was like, refu- literally like I played like three refugee wife roles and then I was like, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> this feels really reductive. I didn't know how to express that um, and it was really frustrating and I took a writing elective in my, uh, almost my final year of uni. I was also doing a law degree at the time, which was a whole other mess. Um, but writing for the first time um, was the first time I was like, "Oh, I'm in control of the story. I'm in control of the characters and who plays them." And it just blew my mind. I was like, "I can't believe I never thought of this before!" Like I was so self-involved during my brief acting phase. I didn't even think like someone wrote the plays. Like I was like, "It's just for me. This has just appeared for me to be a star." Yeah. And I was like, "Oh my goodness, this is like the most powerful position to be in and to really." in part um huge change and i and i had this huge like sort of like I, I guess like secondary education where i just like read so many so many plays so many pl- I, like had such an education in philosophy and history um just from reading plays by a lot of really prominent um queer uh, playwrights um black asian um all kinds of people of color like work and theories and ideas i'd never heard of here and yeah. i was like oh, so this is where it happens. This yeah. is how you can change the world. I forgot what your question was, Darren. I you, just don't worry. TED talk. You answered
1: it.
2: Don't worry. Are yeah. yeah, this
3: will happen a few times. No, I'm, just like, I'm like, I'm like,
2: love it. We're here for it. <laughs> I mean, like, it's so exciting to see people of color, particularly women of color, now holding this space as writers and for yourself, both on screen and on stage. And I think we all have um stories to share and storytelling, te- story storytelling is inherently in our DNA as people of colour in colonial spaces. How has that like f- how have you found that um translate into a, f- into
3: that format into that format? Oh, that's such an interesting question and it's something um I think all of us who are writers or artists who have been um like born into or born in countries that are not our home countries have grappled with. Mm. Um for a long time i like when i started writing and uh, i had like i had a a real, like I was going through a big internal shift in my own politics, but also I was being placed in boxes um, by the broader society at the time, which was like, I think at the time I started writing, there was a new newspaper article that came out that was like, in the entire Australian canon of playwriting, only 5% of plays are Asian. And there was like a development program that I got inducted into um, specifically for Asian playwrights. And this caused like a huge existential crisis for me because like many of us who were born in this country and... Um, Our parents have immigrated um, and have come here. um, You kind of assimilate really hard to survive. And I had this real existential crisis where I was like, I literally and like I don't know for the first couple of years I was like I really want to write about brown people but I've only been taught in the canon of, of whiteness and I also wanted to feel legitimate so I was like writing these half white brown characters that were neither here nor there um, and it like it really messed with my head and it was also frustrating at the same time because these programs that I was being put into were not by other Asian people they were by white people yeah. and I was like who am I writing this for you or am I writing this for myself I was so confused <laughs> Um, and, but that, that all came out in my work and I think what is, um, both the most frustrating and beautiful part of playwriting is it's kind of the space for grappling with those questions of identity. That player at Jeremy Lucas by fucking house was pretty much a real, um, I guess a real, uh, like insight into like every, this turmoil that I was going on at the time where I dressed up as in drag as this, as this like white guy named Jeremy but it was like me, a brown girl playing drag and I was like, I really want to be like this white fucking guy, I want to be able to say whatever I want I shouldn't have to write this beautiful Asian poetry that is expected of me because that's this program that I've been put into, mm-hmm. um, that I'm expected to be soft and subservient and intelligent which I can be, but fuck you, I'm going to do that on my terms, so I wanted to really write this really angry aggressive play um, and really kind of fuck with people's heads. When they yeah. came to this theatre, they heard me. It's very small, a diminutive brown girl speaking like a white person. Um, and it broke a lot of people. It was very controversial play. Um, there was like a giant, it um, was a giant dildo at the end. I was like, oh, he's as gross and difficult as possible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and just like, fuck with people's head. It was a dissection of the property market and race and, um, I, uh, and like all the things I was thinking of. Um, and for me, it was also just really pivotal as an artist. And I think for me, it was going, I don't have to be um I don't have to serve uh anyone except myself yeah and represent what I feel like I'm I'm one person in a big constellation of of all the kind of playwrights and artists of color that are here right now with us on earth and it's my duty to just express where I am in the moment Mm -hmm. and that was very liberating for me yeah um and so I think themes um, of um, all the – yeah, in all my work now, I express themes um, and ideas and, um, like, tenets and tropes that come from both my um, ancestral culture, which is Sri Lanka, going uh, spreading farther to, like, broader Asian, um, Asian cultural themes and tropes that are often present in my work to, like, what it means to be in white Australia – Um, And I navigate that all at once, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be queer, all mixed into a hot pot of whatever I'm writing at the time. Yeah,
2: that is hot. (laughs) That's That's hot. That's hot. All of it. We want more of that. I mean... Being in writers' rooms um, with many different lived experiences and stories being pitched, like it's such a fast space, fast-paced setting. Mm. So, how do you kind of navigate that space and find your truth in it?
3: Oh gosh, another good question, and and that's been a that's been something that's been years in the making as well. And when I started TV writing as well, like I was often, it's crazy. This is only like twenty seventeen, but at least for the first couple of years, I was the only brown person in the room. Mm. Um, and it's really like, I had never felt so, um, so like focused on because of my race than I had like, as part of my job. And it was kind of a very fine line between, um, feeling like exploited versus feeling like I was there representing my, my culture, my people and the the broad, like, and it's, uh, it's not even just my culture, my people. It's like, when you're the only person of the color in the room, you kind of, you kind of have to speak. And it's it's not fair that we should, but you kind of have to speak on behalf of everyone oh, who's yeah. marginalised, which is fucked. I'm so sorry. I'm not that scared. I got so excited. It's, it's, the, it's, it's, the of it all. it's the hate of it all. <laughs> it is messed up, as the kids would say. Um, <laughs> it is messed up, and for me, it was that was also a really difficult time learning to navigate that and really uh, learning to speak it's not necessarily censorship, but it was like learning to know when to stand my ground and not mm. back down and, and to speak my truth. And then, yep. and slowly as time has gone on, like I think there's been a whole generation, I'm really excited about this generation of writers and artists are coming up because we are flooding these rooms um, and just having even your presence in this room that we're uh, in, Sarah, which mm. I'm sure people will find out about <laughs> in the new year. In 2022, yeah. stay tuned. <laughs> just even having more than one of us in a room doubles that power that yeah. we have. It was really hard the first few years. I won't lie, but I think just um like something I really promised myself to do with so many times where I wanted to quit, so many times where I felt so beat down by the system. But I was like, the the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is why, why I got into writing is for my activism to speak to speak to stories and voices that have been historically repressed. Um like, pushed down, beaten, killed. Like, I need to... I'm in a position where I can be in these rooms, so my job is to keep going as difficult as it can be. But I'm so glad the work is paying off. Like, yeah. look how many of us there are now. Yeah. And soon it's going to be... We're going to be the majority. It's going to be mm. white people being like, wow, remember that time when I was the only person in the room? Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm Hectic. Manif-
2: we're all manifesting that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> manifesting our destiny. I mean,
1: speaking of the historical significance of this shift uh, happening now, I feel like there's an abundance of... Of content on screen made whether consciously or not for white people that we've had to consume growing up because we had no choice and we've then had to unlearn it from our youth and often talk about how um, the stuff that we've consumed has been problematic movies or like series which we've also just like rewatched and still kind of loved <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but oh it gosh. makes us at the same time uh, push for stories that are closer to our actual lived experience what are some of these examples of stories for you?
3: Oh, this is such a good question. And, and we've been we've been speaking about these past weeks. So literally on Friday, um, I, I rewatched yesterday Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen, which we <laughs> love, but it's so problematic. It's so
0: racist. <laughs> and I was like,
3: not what I had a whole conflict after, which I was like, no, I just want not be able to laugh and forget about it. And I was like, no, I shouldn't. <laughs> like, this is so problematic. But it's also... I think it's important that, in a way, to revisit these things and go, "That came out in 2004. Why was that the standard of thinking? And why? Why do I know that that's problematic now? And how do we? And now, as a posi- as a person who's in position of creating these stories, how can I create a story that is not just not racist, but like objectively and proactively inclusive? Um, and similarly, I was I was telling Sarah the other week. Uh, it's really funny. Thing I have with the film Legally Blonde. So I love Legally Blonde when I was growing up, which sounds crazy, like if you know who I am now, I'm so staunch in my politics. But Legally Blonde at the time was the only film where I felt it felt, I felt that it represented what it feels like to be othered, even though she Mm. was like a blonde white woman, I like totally forgot that part, I was like, oh my god, that's what it's like for me, Um, which is kind of, it's so messed up to think that that was like the closest thing to, to what that, to being almost like a second generation immigrant in like a world that does not want you there. Um, and exactly what you said, it was kind of growing up with that. You don't question it cause you don't have the vocabulary. You're not in a framework where people are talking about in the way we do now. Um, going through all of that, I, yeah, when I started writing, it was around 2016, 2017, where we were having this big political reckoning, where social media was really coming to the front, where we're, these dialogues were becoming really common. Um, and now having this consciousness of it, having, um, having read so much in the canon of black, queer, people of color, um, literature and playwriting. Um, it's just galvanized me. I feel like I have this breath. I feel like I can kind of like see through the matrix. I'm like, Oh, you really mess with my head. And now I'm so excited to be able to undo that. I'm so excited for this next generation of kids coming through to be able to produce content that I know I wouldn't have at the time know how would have known how meaningful that is, uh, to me at the time, but I know, like, if Legally Blonde could have had that impact on me, which had so, like, miles and miles away from my experience, imagine what it means to have someone, like, who looks like me, who lives like me to write stories that are, like, Legally Blonde, but with me in them, from my perspective for those kids who will grow up and be like, damn, that actually was me. <laughs> like, I just thought that was a funny movie, but that actually was me. Yeah. Um, so I'm stoked. This is
1: Race Matters uh, with Daniel Sargas and Sada Khan. In the studio right now uh, with us is screen and playwright, Natasha Uh Natasha, we're seeing a lot of stories on screen and on stage now that authentically represent stories of people that do not fit the white privilege mould. Uh, do you think the industry is understanding what we mean uh, by more self-determination? Stories now?
3: Oh, that's a good question, too. I think we're at such an interesting, interesting place in not only the history of the world, but the history or just where we are in cinematic um, and theatrical history. I think what we've all been frustrated by as like artists of colour um, is. This, when, and again, when I started playwriting, it was a real, it was genuinely a box ticking exercise. And I think people were just doing it because they felt like, oh, it's the ethical thing to do. They're people too. And I think there's a real reckoning point where, of course, what the reason we're doing it is to take back our power, to take back our voices. Um, And I think it's, like, for the first time in history where, like, the gatekeepers are starting to get scared because they're like, oh, oh, we didn't realise you having representation meant you actually getting power. And I think internally there's, like, a big battle for what that means and I think people like the real higher ups and the gatekeepers of the industry both theatrically and cinematically are really having to do a lot of reckoning and knowing that we are not, yeah, like on screen and people are demanding it, it's like on screen representation is not enough, it's the bare minimum it's yeah. so superficial and everyone can see right through it and they've, I think people are terrified because they know what it means when we start filling up behind the camera when we feel it, start filling up behind the screen it means we're taking back a power
0: Yeah.
3: Um. so I think yeah, it's it's interesting to observe. I feel like, and I I would hope that as difficult as it can be at times, like for all like Indigenous First Nations and people of color working in this industry, they do feel empowered. And when we are, I think, at a time which can feel so divisive, I still I feel like we're at a time. Where we really, where we really can start to take back our power, and it feels incremental, but it's been happening for years. And as all of us kind of, kind of, who've been crawling through the mud for so long, there's so many of us now. I feel like the wave is like reaching its crescendo. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's going to be – I'm really exi- – I think everyone's very excited and nervous for the next five years, but I think I'm going to – I feel, like, optimistic. I know it's going to be difficult. It's going to be – there's going to be fights, but I think, like, just looking at the content that's coming out, even Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You <laughs> was devastating that she was snubbed, but it was also, like, everyone looking at the Golden Globes going, who the hell are you guys? No one cares. This is a brilliant TV show, but the world, like, we've come back to this, like, global sort of democracy where pe- the people on the margins um, from a grassroots – Um, Place are really like galvanized and coming together using social media, using the internet to Mm. speak up with what we want and what we want to see. I think that social media is quite crucial in making sure that
2: our voices are heard as well because, mm. like, before, like, content could just get pushed out but you wouldn't really get the consumer's perspective yeah. on it. You wouldn't really get, like, what all audiences are feeling from it. Yeah, It was only a particular type. And I think so- social media has really feel, like been a really strong tool in getting getting that out there and making um, so many more different identities seen and heard. And, like, when people are like, I'm scared of getting cancelled, I'm
3: like, good. Yeah. Good. Good. So you Good. should. You should be scared. Yeah. I love that beer. I love to smell it. What a room. <laughs> It's like, cause I never felt it in their lives. And mm-hmm. it's like, I, that's, I've lived with that my whole life. My parents live with that. Our families lived with that. And it's just, it's literally for the first time in their life yeah. that that fear is present. And it's, and it's also such a, a fallacy because I'm like, you even saying you're scared to be canceled means you haven't done the work. You're just, you haven't done the work of interrogating your privilege. You haven't done the work of interrogating why you need to sit, sit back and, and sit down. You're just scared of giving up what you feel like you're yep. entitled to. Exactly. So then how
2: have you now learned to be unapologetic and affirm yourself and your stories in these writers' rooms but then also protect yourself?
3: It's a really tough balance and it's something that's come from experience. It was really tough the first few years again because it was very naive and very trusting and I was like, oh, Obama got elected, like, we're post races <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> so innocent, oh, so innocent, oh, little Natasha. Yeah. But, that, but also I think that was just, like, how people thought. Oh, and, yeah um being in an environment where your race is being like analyzed your background your ancestry um in a way that had never happened before to me Really, like, it broke me down, but it also, uh, it also created, like, every time I chose to get back up, um, it created, like, a, a, a real strong sense of resilience in me. A big part of my practice has been self-care, but I mean self-care in, like, in a political sense. There's a very famous black activist, and I can't believe I've forgotten her name, who who coined the term self-care mm. during the civil rights movement. Yes,
2: uh, I, I know. I, I can't it's, believe in for... top, it's in my top of my tongue, yeah.
3: um. And it's been co-opted, of course, by, <laughs> by inner city white girls, but <laughs> self-care in a political sense really means to, to go, I'm not going to be like crushed by capitalism or the patriarchy. I have to cut, if I'm going to keep being an activist, I have to look after myself, um, because it's so easy to get crushed, to get bitter, to get cynical, um, to, to become really bitter or to, yeah, fall prey to, like, white supremacy and, like, look around at other people in Cologne be like, there's only one job. It's just for me. Where really, um, true activism is being like, we all have to come up together. If we, if one of us can't come up, that's not enough. Like mm. we all have to come up together. So self-care has been a huge part of that for me, taking a lot of time out in between jobs, setting like hard boundaries and learning to assert myself. And again, this was in nearly impossible to do five years ago, but it's also being surrounded by people like Sarah Khan, being <laughs> surrounded by brilliant artists, activists, um, who were all on the same path, being able to share our stories and journeys together. Um, and just knowing what your limits are and that you're not a vessel or a receptacle for exploitation you're a person you do not owe these stories to white audiences they do you do not owe them anything mm-hmm. and as soon as you feel like trust your gut is always my advice to yeah. young young creatives of color coming up trust your gut um, and don't like they will sweet talk you but <laughs> do not be fooled do yep. not be fooled a lot of them I mean it was a big thing why I veered away from like writing about, um, trauma in my work all the time and it was a big thing like in my early when I started writing it was like the thing I was commissioned for all the time and it was really triggering for me of course but I like convinced myself as the, as the kind of industry convinces you that this is the stories that we need to show this is stories we need to hear so people can understand the pain you're going through but then I realized that while that might have a grain of truth in it it's actually also if we're only viewing people of colour, only viewing black people and First Nations people in their trauma um it's it's really a really insidious form of white supremacy to keep us in our place. Yeah. We are only ever viewed as that we're never viewed as agents of our own story um as being uh, people who can self-determine our own stories and when I realized that I was like screw this yeah. like I'm doing it on my own terms. Um and it's also something I uh, something I always share with young creatives of color is to yeah, to really like build that sense of intuition, spend a lot of time with yourself, understand what drives you as an artist like be surrounded and be influenced by the world around you but take time to let that sit in your heart work out that what that means for you and trust yourself that whatever story comes out of you you've lived your life yeah. you've lived that experience you don't have to justify it to anyone what will come out is your truth in whatever form it will
0: oh god <laughs> <laughs>
2: I just, I'm so, I'm so like, recharged.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I've
2: got a big engine in me now. It's no. like, I, I want to go off and I want to ride. I want no. to just go and like,
1: F shit up.
3: Let's do it.
1: Natasha, we are near the end of our time together, but there is one question that we ask all of our guests who come through on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, Natasha, when did you realise there was power in your race?
3: Oh, Oh, that's such a good question. When did I realise there was power? Hmm. I'm not sure for me it was like a single moment, mm. but it's certainly been through a, a lifetime of learning. Um, it's certainly been a, a lifetime of unlearning a lot of self-loathing um, yeah. and a, a lifetime of being surrounded by, again, incredible women, uh, brown women, people of color, incredible black women, queer women, um, reading their work, sitting in their literature for long periods of time by myself, um, that I started to realize there was power in my race, in my skin. Um, One of my, I think one of my favorite authors is probably James, I'd say James Baldwin. Yeah, he's one of my favorites, top three. Um, And definitely reading his work um, as a queer black man, it had the most resonance for me. Um, and it really, uh, I always come back to his work and I always, he's, yeah, one, of, one of my favorite authors for someone who had to live during the time that he did and to write such radical works. And anytime I feel lost, I do, I do think of him and I'm like, he did whatever he wanted and he changed my life. So I'm going to do that too. Um, his stories are so, um, uh, so poetic and, you know, uh, and they kind of cross the universe. Like it'll always be about one person and then somehow he'll be like philosophizing about what it means to be a human, a black person, a queer person, a woman. And I'm like, oh my gosh, crying every time I read his work. <laughs> um, for him, he's probably one of my favorites and, and someone who made me realize, yeah, there's power in my skin, there's power in my race. Oh,
2: amazing. Oh, well, thank you so much, Natasha, for coming and sharing the space with us. It's been an absolute privilege listening to you and learning from you as well. You really um gave a lot of food for thought <laughs> oh, and all, all of um all of the dialogue that you just shared with us. So thank you so much. That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Sada Khan.
1: I'm Dallas sargas You can find uh, every episode of our show at fbiradio.com slash race matters, or you can listen back wherever you get uh, your podcasts. But um yeah, that's all. We'll see you next week. Race
0: Matters. Race Matters.
1: Race Matters. Race,
0: race Matters. Race Matters. Race
1: Matters Race Matters. Race
0: Matters.